Our scripture passage this morning is Matthew 18, 1 through 9. At the time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom temptations come. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, many of you probably can't see her, but members of Southside, Miss Robbie Golson is with us this morning after a long time. It's good to see you. Let's pray together. Though we fall, your love is sure. For Christ has paid for every failing and we are yours forevermore. And though we walk in this fallen world and experience much sorrow, we often see no good in the valley. But ours is peace that flows from heaven. The strength in time of need, our pain will not be wasted till Christ completes his work in me. Father, help us to believe it. Help us to endure faithfully. Would you preserve us for your namesake? We need your preserving grace. If you would but let us go, we would fall. No doubt about it, God. So would you keep us? Would you preserve us? Would you continually ground us in the good news of Christ? Father, would you make us a people that are filled with gratitude for all sorts of things? Would we have the right perspective? Would we continually be reminding ourselves that we have nothing but gift? What do we have that we have not received? Nothing, everything from the breath in our lungs to living on this world to the fact that our names are written in the book of life that you've called us to labor alongside ultimately you by the power of the Spirit, would we be a people who recognize ingratitude in our heart and seek to rut it out? Give us perspective to see all that we have to be thankful for and may we live lives filled with thanksgiving. Father, I want to pray for our healthcare workers this morning. So thankful for so many here at Southside. Would you be with them? Would you help them in, to endure as 
they've had a long couple of years and, and life, the new normal is, is far from easy. Would you help them to be healthy, preserve their health as they're around sickness all day long, build their immunity system, preserve their health, and would you help them to be healthy spiritually, even though they're often overworked, underappreciated? God, would you be their portion? Help them to lean on you. Would they be able to see their work as ultimately unto you and so that they would work with all their heart, that they would work mightily, knowing that even if their boss is less than pleasant, they're working for the sake of Jesus Christ, giving thanks in all things. Help them to care well. Help them to bring your love into their care for others. May their patients see something different about them. May they have an aroma of Christ as they go about caring for patients. Would you give them diligence and an exemplary work ethic? And God, give them an exemplary character. God, may they ultimately fear you and would you help their work to prosper. And Father, we pray for the church in Russia, many legitimate Christians that are torn in all sorts of ways. Would you be with them during this time? Strengthen them. Give them a, a powerful countercultural presence in the midst of such disaster. And God, as we turn to your word, help us to believe that your word is truth. As your son prayed, your word is truth, sanctify us by the truth, set us apart by the truth, shape us by the truth. Every word of yours proves true. And by it, Peter tells us, we grow up into salvation. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but your word endures forever. So we ask that you would shape us by it. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, don't you want to be great? I may not say that very often, but probably deep down in your heart, there's this desire for greatness, and it, it helps or doesn't help by the fact that the message of media is constantly really pounding that same thing home. Be great. Seek greatness. Jesus actually agrees. Jesus encourages you, if you're a disciple of his, to seek greatness to be great, but his definition is quite different than the world's definition of what it means to be great. His definition, as we will see, is counterintuitive. It's countercultural. So this morning, as we continue our walk through the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to be on page 772 if you're borrowing one of our Bibles there in the chairs, and we come to a new section, and really all of chapter 18, which we'll spend, what, one, two, at least three sermons on is about the, the community rule. And so as Jesus is bringing his disciples and people are coming to faith, really this is a chapter on the rule of the community. Okay, how are we to live together as the people of God? What, how are we to operate as the community of the new covenant? And so we'll see that each week and what it looks like. Jesus leaves us with explicit instructions on what it means to be his people. And what I want us to see is that the values of the kingdom are counterintuitive and greatness in the kingdom requires the path of downward mobility. It's an upside down kingdom as we saw so often in Matthew 5 to 7. And so let's consider two points together. First, what is kingdom greatness in those first six verses? Second, the seriousness of sin in verses 7 to 9. So what is kingdom greatness? Well, remember, if you were here with us last week, Jesus had just told Peter in particular that the kings of the earth and his sons are free from the tax. And so they may have just be into thinking, oh, well, we're sons of the king. 
may begin thinking, oh, what about a... What about this uh, royal status? How's this going to benefit me? And, and how do I rank in the order of this royal family? Who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be the prince? Who's going to have the highest honor? Who's going to receive the greatest glory? As J.C. Rowell puts it about these disciples, they spoke as men half enlightened and full of carnal expectations. And Jesus undermines their ambitious aspirations and their competitive mindset. He answers and he illustrates. First with a call to humility and then with a call on how we can practice humility. Look at Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child... He put them in the midst of them. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Who gets the highest rank in this new government? Well, Jesus gives an object lesson. Just imagine being this kid. One of Jesus' sermon props. Look at verse 3. And he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says you must become childlike if you would enter the kingdom. Don't you worry so much about your rank in the kingdom, you ought to wonder if you're going to get in at all. You're asking the wrong questions here. You're adopting the wrong posture. Put greatness aside. Get in the kingdom. And how do you do it? Well, you become like children. What, What exactly is Jesus saying here? I think I've wrongly assumed in the past before I took my time and slowed down a little bit that it means innocent. And then I remembered that I have kids. (laughs) I don't know many innocent children. They have to be monitored constantly. And then, well, maybe it's become humble like children. But then again, I have kids and don't know many children that are actually humble. My four-year-old and I got in an argument yesterday because he insisted that the hair right here is a beard, not a mustache. No, the issue Jesus is after is status. Not innocence, but smallness. Not so much about attitudes and behavior, but station. You see, in the ancient world, they didn't have a really high view of kids. They were most, the most powerless members of society. In the first century, kids just followed adults. They listened and they obeyed, unlike in America today. I shared with the guys on Wednesday when we were talking about uh, biblical manhood that Steve Farrar uh, had shared a story of when one of the royal members of the royal family came to America and he came back to London and a reporter asked him, what did he, what did he see in America? And he said, I was most struck by the way the parents obey their children. <laughs> well, not then, not in Jesus' day. And Jesus is saying that greatness in the kingdom comes not by selfish ambition and the desire to have power and the desire to be known, but actually by taking the position in the social scale of children. They're the lowest on the totem pole. They're the bottom of the pecking order. Jesus is saying, take the low social status, the lowly position of weakness and dependency and vulnerability. Leave the competition behind. The values of this upside down kingdom are counterintuitive and greatness in the kingdom requires the path, not of upward, but of downward mobility. King Jimmy 
in the King James Version says, translates this verse like this, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Except you be converted, unless you turn your life completely around, you will not be saved. That's what Jesus says. You will not enter the kingdom. If you don't become like children, this is serious. Selfish ambition is damning. Wanting to be number one will keep you from the kingdom. A concern for status is incompatible with kingdom values. See this all over the Bible. Remember in Acts 12? Acts 12 narrates the the death of Herod, an angel, the Lord kills him, and he tells the reason, because he did not give God the glory. He wanted to give himself the glory. It's a selfish ambition. In John's gospel, he speaks of those who love human praise more than the praise of God. Self-glorification, pride is what we could call it, is at odds with the purposes of God. God opposes the proud. In Mark's gospel, his version of the story says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Those who would be first will actually end up being last. And we've seen this in Matthew, and we'll see it again. Flip over a page to Matthew chapter 20, verse 26. Jesus says, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the model. What does his royalty look like? Flip over just a couple more pages to chapter 23 of Matthew, where Jesus is rebuking the most religious people of his day, the religious leaders, chapter 23, verse 11. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But don't, don't misunderstand. Jesus does want us to seek greatness just not the kind you're thinking, right? Jesus wants us to have a certain type of ambition, but it's a, it's a reordered ambition, a different kind of greatness. He wants us to have the right ambition, the right desires, the right motive, and that's not to become great in the world's eyes, but it's become lowly like children. Jesus often does that. He knows that at the end of the day, we want to live for things that matter. He wants us to aspire to greatness. We just got to get on the right track of what greatness is. He wants us to have reward, right? Do you remember all those passages in Matthew 6, right there in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount where he says again and again, when you pray, don't just throw out a bunch of words, but go to your prayer closet. When you fast, don't like mess up your face and, you know, don't put the cross where everybody can see and everybody knows. Rather, wash your face so that no one knows that you're fasting. And then he talks about when you give, don't give where everyone can see it, but give privately. Why? He says again and again and again, because if you do that, you have your reward and you're thinking far too small. You need to think of a greater reward. He actually commands us, lay up treasures in heaven. We should seek treasure. We should seek reward, just not earthly treasure and earthly reward. Same way, we should seek to be the greatest 
in the kingdom. We just got to know what that means. The verb there in verse 4 can be translated, whoever humiliates himself. Whoever humbles himself, whoever humiliates himself. It makes me think of John chapter 13. If you want, you can flip over there with me. John 13, this is just kind of like where we're at in Matthew. John 13 is where Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. He's headed to the cross. So oftentimes, John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, that's called the uh, farewell discourse. What does that mean? It's his goodbye speech. It's his last words, right? Last words are weighty words. And so what does Jesus want to leave with his disciples? Well, here we have it in John 13. Verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand. Now, but afterward, you will Understand, And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. What kind of king is this? The last message he wants to leave, the last image that he wants to leave with his disciples is him, rather than being served, rather than him commanding orders and taking advantage of who he is as the son of God and the king of the world. Instead, he adopts the dress and the manners and the practice of a household servant. In that day, Jews couldn't even be household servants. And here is the king of the Jews becoming a household servant. What do I want you to know about me and my ways, disciples? It's not about you. Greatness comes through serving others. And that's why he says in verse 12 of John 13, do you understand what I've done to you? Then in verse 15, I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. This is what greatness is. It's not getting your own way and being known and being the big name and the most liked. It's actually becoming a servant of others with household menial things like washing nasty feet. I actually think the Apostle Paul, you can flip over a little more with me if you want in the book of Philippians chapter two. I think part of what Paul's thinking about in Philippians two, this mind of Jesus is John 13. Philippians chapter two, verse one. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, all unity matters so much to God. Verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. I think that's where he's thinking of John 13. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is greatness. Coming into every situation you're in and not thinking, how can I benefit? But rather, even if you deserve it, because no one deserved it more than Jesus, though being in the form of God, he didn't use it for his own glory. Instead, coming in and asking, how can I empty myself? How can I give myself? How can I take the lowly status that I might put others ahead of me? One of the main enemies of the kingdom of Christ is the desire to be prominent. There are no great ones in the kingdom. Self-exaltation is not the way of Jesus. Self-emptying is. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so the values of Jesus' kingdom is not upward, but downward. The way up in the kingdom of Christ is the way down. Many who are first will be last and the last first. What Jesus is after here in each of the hearts of his disciples is a redirection of ambition. Be like kids. Enter the mindset of perpetual amateurs. Be all about my business, but don't be one wanting to be known for it. Again, right back to Matthew chapter 6. Yes, give. Yes, pray. Yes, store up treasures. But don't even let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. Disciples of Jesus deliberately seek to be unnoticed. It's a radical change, isn't it? It's a radical change of orientation. Puts us on a new footing, really a new birth, right? A total new start, radical inversion, a reversal. Remember the Beatitudes, it's an upside down kingdom. Blessed are who? The poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are needy, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In other words, it requires repentance. Remember, repentance is a word that at base just means to change your mind. It's to change your mind. It's to turn from yourself and sin toward God and to turn to him in everything. It's really not that different than what we've already seen, right, in Matthew chapter 16, 24. What did Jesus call us to there? If anyone would be my disciple, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and follow me. This is hard in our day, not only because of our own flesh and the devil, but also the world. Social media makes this really hard. You know, one way, one way to know if you're violating Jesus' vision here is to ask motives on things you post on social media. This is a game changer, I think. Why am I going to post what I post? Oftentimes in our day, it's to tear someone down, set a build up. But I think even more than that, it's to look great. It's, an, it's like a digital scoreboard. Look at me and my house and my family and my vacation and my smoking hot wife and my, it's a pastor joke you probably don't get. Lots of Baptist pastors at conventions love to talk about their smoking hot wives for some reason. 
Look at my ministry. Me, myself, and I. Look at verse five. Jesus continues. So a call to humility and now the practice of humility. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Notice this. Notice the words of the Lord here. To get to heaven, we must become like children, but also receive them. Receive them in Jesus' name. And Jesus has a very strong warning against causing such children to sin. The word is actually stumble. Maybe your translation says that. And the idea here is causing one to stumble out of the race. Matthew and Jesus have used it before back in chapter 5. Let me just read it to you. You don't have to turn there. But in chapter 5, verse 29, if your right eye causes you to, there it is, sin, stumble, I think stumble might be too soft maybe in English nowadays, but it wasn't then. But if it causes you to sin, stumble, tear it out, similar language we're going to see in a minute, throw it away. And then he says, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. He says it and also uses the same word actually in the parable of the sower. Do you remember that in chapter 13 where three of the four soils actually don't bear fruit? And here's the way he describes one of them in verse 21. I'll start in 20, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the world, immediately he stumbles. ESV says he falls away. The word is scandalizo. His faith is scandalized. And Jesus says, you had better not cause my children to stumble or there will be a reckoning. He says, it would be better to have a large stone tied around your neck and thrown into the bottom of the ocean. Millstones, this one, the word in particular was a, a large stone used to grind mill. And these were the ones that were very heavy, often turned, turned by donkeys. And Jesus says, it would be better to brutally drown than face the consequences of causing a child's faith to stumble. I mean, just imagine this for a moment. Jesus, I think, gives us the picture because he wants us to picture it. This is going out to the ocean with a large stone with a rope tied around your throat and thrown in and your body being quickly drugged to the bottom of the sea while your lungs are filling with salt water. Jesus said that would be a blessing to die that way before misleading a child by false living or false teaching. I don't think we can get any more serious, can we? Jesus is so serious about children and their care. One commentator says, child care is the best way to be humble in Jesus' sense. <laughs> of course, he means more than babysitting. He means the care of children. King Jesus says, you must become like them and receive them, welcome them. So friends, ministry to and care for children is vitally important to Jesus. And what's the opposite of causing kids to stumble? It's causing them to grow spiritually. Instead of tearing down faith, it's wanting to build up the faith of children, to strengthen their faith, to welcome them. 
And so all followers of Jesus should have a deep concern for and care of kids. Jesus was often welcoming them and grabbing them and praying for them and putting them in his arms and blessing them. One commentator speaking about the way Jesus received children says this, is that the way we treat children? Do we receive them? Or are we more like the disciples who want to chase the children away because Jesus doesn't have time for them? Do we find little children an annoyance? Or do we receive them for Jesus' sake? Children's are not symbols of something else. Our spiritual condition is evident in the way we treat children. End quote. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite quotes, that children aren't a distraction from more important work. They are the most important work. And so what are some ways then we as a church can pursue greatness? Greatness as Jesus defines it, true greatness. I want to give everybody an opportunity to take some next step. So I want to give you seven options. Number one, nursery. You know, Southside, we, you know, we're not a small church. It's all relative, right? When again, when I'm with those Baptist pastors that like to talk about their smoking out wives, they'll often talk about church numbers. What you running? I hate that question. And depending on the size of the church, maybe, maybe we are a large church. I don't know. But if it's talking about, you know, 2,000 men, we're a very small church. We're at a size church where it's kind of a struggle because we have enough people and a little staff that we can't do everything that maybe y'all want us to do, right? We're kind of in that in-between where it's hard to do a lot of things and hard to do a lot of things well. And so then you add on top of that our church size and the proportion, which I've never really done the math, maybe I should, but the proportion of little people in this room or over there. I think I'm pretty sure we're quite disproportionate to most churches. When we have guests come in, it's one of the, one of the especially older guests, it's one of the first things that there's kids are everywhere. Uh, so we have a lot of kids at this church, praise God. Part of that is because of your high view of children. But with that becomes challenges, right? And so we've got a couple things happening. You know that we announced back in the members meeting, I think February, maybe January, that Josh Cornett, who's our family discipleship minister, is transitioning off staff in June to become the headmaster of ACA. I'll say more about that in a moment. So you've got our already challenges even when we're at our best. We're about to have some staff transition and we just have kids everywhere. I can't even keep up with who's pregnant up in this room. Praise God. <laughs> but here's the deal. We need you to step up. And so many of you, the vast majority of our members are on a rotation. Thank you for being great. Thank you for serving. What we need more than even more people is for you to take responsibility and ownership, especially moving in with staff transition and the summer months. Summer months are hard around here, again, because we're young. In other churches, young ones come to them. A lot of you go to see various vacation, family, all that thing. So here's what I want to ask you to do. See greatness in this way. If you're going to be out, if you can't keep your commitment on that rotation, you do the job of finding a replacement. That would be a huge blessing to everybody. So our size and our structure is like a co-op, really. So we got to cooperate together. So if you can't meet your commitments, do your best to find someone who can. That would be a huge way to serve the church and serve kids. And again, as you go in, think about the value Jesus places on those little ones. I know it can be challenging. But think about Jesus. Put on the Jesus lenses in that room with all these little people. And how is his attitude towards them and what is yours? 
Number two, teaching kids. Some of you are good teachers and you're not using your gift. And so this would be more like for the fall, but we have Sunday morning, 9 a.m. We have Sunday, Wednesday. You can teach, you can be a helper, you can be a sub. So let me just encourage you to be thinking and praying about jumping in in the fall to build up the faith of these little ones. Number three, really easy, VBS is right around the corner. Register online, easy way to serve. It's actually a whole lot of fun. Friends, a healthy church is characterized by a waiting list of members who desire to love, teach, and serve kids. Let's seek greatness as Jesus defines greatness. Let me mention just a few ministry partners. This past fall in August, several Southside families started a a classical Christian school. It's called Abilene Classical Academy. It's housed right next door. uh, And the Lord has really blessed it. It's it's a really Christ-centered option for some families. It's not for everybody, but it has started way stronger than any of us had hoped. Abilene really needed something like this that is classical, but also robustly Bible-centered and Christ-centered. And currently, they're hiring a fourth grade teacher, a math instructor, maybe a combination, PE and or art. So if you're interested, again, see Josh Cornett, josh at ssbaptist.org. There's lots of other ways you could serve, be a sub, encourage teachers, those sorts of things, seeking to be great in the eyes of Jesus. Fifth, we have lots of you already fostering kids. And you know, but maybe others don't know, that there is a huge need in the city of Abilene for foster parents. Uh, again, a disproportionate need for the size of Abilene. And there's a host of different organizations. Various families of ours have had experience, good and bad, with some of those organizations. So if the Lord has been kind of nudging you to foster, seek greatness the way Jesus defines it. Come talk to us. We'll get you connected. What we want to do is be a huge resource to our foster parents because it's hard work, but it's great work. To that end, we've partnered with Foster 325. So Foster 325, it's a partner of ours in ministry. It's it's really wanting to get churches in the big country engaged with foster care. And so the basic premise is you have a foster family. We announced this once before back in January, February. We had 21 families respond. Thank you. Praise God. So some of you probably weren't here. So let me tell you about it again. We could use more. So the idea is that we put these wraparound families to come around a family that is fostering, just to come alongside and bless them in a variety of ways so that they can foster stronger and longer. So if you're interested in that, email Melissa is probably the easiest way. That's Melissa Harrell's email. If not, contact the office. We'll connect you. I don't think Melissa's here this morning. But this is really, honestly, it's a pretty easy way to come alongside members who are trying to foster well and, again, serve needy, broken kids from the area. So Foster 325 is a great way to seek greatness. And then I want to introduce another one, a new one called Safe Families. Safe Families is not a new ministry, but it's a, it's a new partner for us. And they are out of uh, Chicago. And here's the basic premise of Safe Families. So it's a little different than Foster 325. You can maybe call it more like um, respite care. Here's what happens. So a family, usually a single mom, a functional widow, has, has some troubles. So a child, again, usually five and under, has something going on 
that gets on the radar of CPS. So whatever it may be, maybe a school sees something, maybe, you know, who knows, someone tips CPS and it's not quite severe enough that CPS wants to take the child from the home. So CPS calls Safe Family and Safe Families will then call a church like ours now to, to come alongside and help. And here's the basic idea. The bulk of the work is on a host family. So host family would take in this child for a season to help mama get on her feet. And often it's just life skills. Help mama get back on her feet. And here's the beauty of it. Other members, depending on where you land on this team, can come alongside mama and help her as well. And so we're building a relationship with mama and we can even limit it to how, we can say no to requests and limit it to people in the vicinity of the church. Help mama get on her feet. And then when we put them back together, it's, it's temporary, it's designed that way, then we can continue to be a resource to the family. The average stay is 44 days, and again, it's usually five and under. And so this idea is you have a host family that maybe you're not ready to foster, but you could do something temporary. And so you can see the different ways uh, that you can come in and provide resources. You can be trained to be a family coach. You can just be a friend. You can be one who helps them get to school or daycare if they're in school or daycare. And then we'll have a point person. Savannah Dean, who's graduating, who's not here, uh, works with Safe Families. And today, we've got two of their staffers over here in the Welcome Center. So over here in the Welcome Center, if this at all interests you, Sign up and just learn. Just learn. They'll do some trainings. They'll be in touch. Uh, I think, again, it's a fairly easy way to seek greatness in the mind of Jesus, to love kids that are in a really hard spot. This is hard work. And to come alongside parents that are struggling and resource them. How's God calling you to seek greatness? At the very least... Would you just pray for all these initiatives? And would you pray for our kids? I don't know how often you do that. When we have new member guides, which we'll have soon after we add some members tonight, pray for the children of this congregation. They're not the future of the church. They're the church. So let's do what Jesus says to do. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. The values of this upside-down kingdom are counterintuitive, and greatness in the kingdom requires the path of downward mobility. Now, just briefly, second, the seriousness of sin. Jesus basically says the same thing he said in chapter 5. Look at Matthew 18, verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Jesus says, woe to the world, what sorrow awaits it? In a fallen world, temptation is inevitable. But he warns the one who causes the temptation. Jesus wants us to be like him, and so those who would keep that from happening or cause the opposite to happen are the enemies of Jesus. And what sorrow awaits those who remain at odds with Jesus and his purposes? Friends, we need to make sure we do not tempt the people of Jesus. Some of you are kind of on the fence and some of you may be living for the world. There's plenty of Bible that would warn you to repent for your own sake, but this especially says don't dare cause one of Jesus' disciples to be tempted. Kids, look up at me. Jesus says you should be very careful, kids, to influence your friends toward Jesus not away from Jesus. You want to build up the faith 
of your friends, not tear it down. And listen, if you have friends that tear down your faith, you need to find new friends. Bible says bad company corrupts good character. So church, don't be one who hinders conformity to Jesus. Rather, do the opposite. Be one who helps conformity to Jesus. What we call discipleship. What is discipleship? Following Jesus and helping others follow Jesus. Look at verse 8. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Another strong warning by the king of kings. He commands us to take sin with utmost seriousness. Not just cut it off, but cut it off and throw it away. What known sin is the Holy Spirit bringing to your mind right now? Willing, continual, unrepentant sin. Jesus says, get serious or you're going to go to hell. Same thing he said about sexual sin in Matthew chapter 5. We must put sin to death. John Owen said, we must mortify it. Thinking about Romans 8 that says this, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's the invitation here is come to life. That's what Jesus wants. Do whatever you have to do. Take drastic measures so that you won't go to the eternal fire of hell. It's another warning. Jesus says it so often. God will bring judgment. We don't like to talk about it. We don't like to think about it. But final judgment is coming. Forever judgment. God is a God of love, a God of grace, a God of mercy. But God is also a God of justice. And at some point, his grace and mercy will run out if people do not trust a Christ and repent of their sins. And maybe that's you. Maybe you're here and you haven't done that yet. Hear this warning. Our life, earthly life is short. Eternal life is long. We have all sinned. Sinned in word, sinned in deed, sinned in thought. And that has separated us from God because God is holy. But the good news of the gospel is he didn't leave us there. He made a way. He bridged the gap. He sent his son to die in our place so that our sins can be forgiven. And we can enter not eternal fire, but eternal life. The call is faith and repentance. Turn to Christ and away from sin and self. Faith, repentance, baptism. Trust in Christ and turn from sin. That's two sides of the same coin. And the first step of obedience is believer's baptism, going public, publicly pledging allegiance before the congregation that Jesus is Lord. Friends, let's adopt the values of the kingdom. Let's take sin seriously. Let's pursue greatness as Jesus would have us. May God give us the grace to do so. Let's pray. Father, by your spirit, would you help us to hate sin? Pray for those in this room that are in sin and they're not really battling it. They've resigned the battle. I pray that you would, by your spirit, convict them afresh to take sin seriously and to cut it off and throw it away. Give them help by your spirit, by your word, by the community to fight sin well together. Help us to increase our hatred of sin. 
that we might love you and serve you. God, I pray for those of us who struggle and battle the monster of ego and pride and wanting to be noticed and be prominent. God, would you help us by your spirit to crucify our egos and believe Jesus at his word that greatness has not come through being first, but being last, not by being served, but by becoming a servant. And God, I'm so thankful for your work in this congregation for caring for the next generation and caring for kids. And I just pray that you would increase that. Increase our love for children. Increase our care for children. May Southside be a light in this neighborhood, in this city, as a church that loves and welcomes children. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.